Well, good evening, everyone. I hope you have enjoyed your time here. This is a uh, really a wonderful time to get together and to uh, see one another, to worship God together, to uh, remember all that God has done uh, for us. I know that God has used uh, retreats like this, conferences like this over the years to really change my life. And so I, I trust that God has really been speaking to you, moving in your heart. And uh, I'm excited to share with you a few thoughts from the Word of God. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 14 through 21. But before we dive in, uh, let's go ahead and and pray and commit our time to the Lord. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, what a a joy it is uh, to know you. Uh, What a joy it is to be reconciled to you. Lord, we have been uh, created for you, for your purposes. We have not been created to, to live for ourselves, but we have been created to know you and love you and worship you. And I just ask for these next few minutes that you would speak to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. Uh, we ask that you would uh, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. I pray you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. I pray you would correct us where we need to be corrected. And, and we know that we need your help and And we are so grateful that you long to be gracious to us. And so speak to us now for uh, really the sake of your son. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening, I have one goal, and it's a very simple goal. And here is the goal. It's that Jesus Christ would be glorious to you. That Jesus Christ would be glorious to you. That Jesus would be more than an idea in your head that he would be more than a historical figure in your mind, that he'd be more than an example to follow. Rather, that you would see Jesus Christ as worthy of all that you are and all that you have. And when we taste the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ, everything changes in life. Like everything is different. When you see Christ, your eyes are open to the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. Your life will never be the same. And when you don't see the glory of Christ, the world... And all the pleasures of sin are like Disneyland and you're like the kid. That's what happens even if you're in a religious context, even if you're around Christians, even if you hear the Bible, even if you go to church, if you don't see the glory of Christ, the world and the pleasures of this life are like Disneyland and you are the kid. In the world, that's where all your heroes are. That's where all the important people are. That's where all the princes and princesses are. That's where the candy is, the fun, all the rides, the bright lights. And the world and sin, the pleasures of the world, you feel like you have to have them. And so as a result, there are so many people who go to church that profess faith in Christ, but inwardly they're chasing after the world. But when you see Christ and you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, the world does not look like Disneyland anymore. The world and the pleasures of sin, they start to look like a lame infomercial. It's just not all that appealing anymore. And I think the most uh, memorable infomercial uh, I've ever seen is for a product called the Slap Chop. Have you ever heard of this before? Does anyone have a Slap Chop? Anyone? Oh, we have some people with the Slap Chop. I am so proud of you guys. Good job. And uh, so I'm going to show a quick little video. It's one minute long, so don't, don't blink. It's one minute long. And what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to the promises that are made in the infomercial. Okay, then we'll come back. So here's, here's the video. Hi, it's Fitz with Slap Chop. You're going to be in a great mood all day because you're going to be slapping your troubles away with a Slap Chop. Now look, here's a potato. One slap, you got big chunks for stews. Two slaps, home fries in a second. And look at this. But you add a mushroom, the more you do it, the finer it gets. You have to switch any blades. You love salad. You hate making it. Take the stringy celery, take the carrots. Salad. I love pizza too, but once in a while, get the veggies in. At least throw it on top of the pizza. This tuna looks boring. Stop having a boring tuna. Stop having a boring life. Here's a hard-boiled egg. One chop, you add the pickle, you add the green onion. And then what you can do, you can mix things together. You add the ham. You don't have time to make breakfast. You're going to have an exciting life now. Breakfast to go. You're going to love my nuts. Watch this. You can do everything in the cover. It's so easy. One finger. Kids can do it. They're going to charge you a dollar for toppings at the ice cream stores. What about fruit? Put a mango. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful on your ice cream? It's so easy to clean. One, two, and pops open to clean. Now these other ones, bacteria gets in the food. Can't open this up. It's worthless. Forget about it. Now, take the slap chop. All right, here's the garlic with the skin. There you go. These skins the garlic. 
the onions with the skin. All right, this is making you cry and making me cry. Life's hard enough as it is. You don't want to cry anymore. The skin's at the bottom. Hey, look, so you want a little bit of onions. You don't want to drag out the food processor. The skin comes right off. We're going to make America skinny again. One slap at a time. When you buy the slap chop, we're gonna give you the grating for cheese. White cheese, yellow cheese in the container. Comes with a twister and watch this. Tacos, fettuccine, linguine, martini, bikini. Comes with two blades, just bang it. Cheese comes right out, fine and coarse. Parmesan, comes with a cover, stays sealed. Put it in the fridge, take it out when you need it. The slap chop sells for $19.95, but if you call now, Within the next 20 minutes, because you know we can't do this all day, you're going to get the grady absolutely free. Just pay for processing. Here's how to order. Okay, so here are a few of the slap chop promises. Are you ready? Here they are. You're going to be in a great mood all day because you're going to be slapping your troubles away with the slap chop. So it's going to improve your mood. Next, you're going to change your eating habits by getting a slap chop. Soup, coleslaw, stuff you want, five seconds. Four or five seconds, it's done. That's what he's saying. Slap chop promise number three, this tuna looks boring. Stop having a boring tuna, stop having a boring life. <laughs> Add this tuna, put it in like this. Now you're gonna have a nice tuna salad. Look at this, you're gonna have an exciting life now. And so when you, when you look at this, when you look at this infomercial, uh, you, you understand immediately that the slap chop is not the secret to real life. You just know it. It's making empty promises. And this is what the world does. This is what our sin does. This is what our flesh does. It makes empty promises to us all the time that we cannot, we can, uh, that it cannot keep. And I, I'm sure that all of you, or none of you, I should say, have ever thought to yourself, what I really need in, in my life is a slap chop. You've never thought that even one time in all of your life. And see, when the Lord Jesus Christ is glorious before your eyes, you stop looking to the world to find life. And that's what I hope happens here, that you just stop. You, when he's glorious, you just know that the world and the pleasures of this world cannot give you life. So you stop looking there. You, you don't spend your life wallowing in sin. Rather, you, you live for Christ. The great hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so when Christ is glorious to you, the Christian life begins to open up. The Christian life is, is where you want to invest all that you are and all that you have in the person of Jesus Christ. So the goal for tonight is that Jesus would be glorious to you. And to help us see the glory of Christ, uh, we're going to answer two questions from our text. The first question is, what has God done for us in Christ? What has God done for us in Christ? The second question is, what does God do through us in Christ. So what has he done for us? And then what does he do through us? Because God really wants to do something first in us. He wants to do something inwardly where he changes us. And then he wants to do something through us. So question number one, what has God done for us in Christ? And there are 10 truths in this text. I'm going to give you two. First is that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. What has God done for us? He has reconciled us to himself through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. The word reconciled or reconciliation is used five times in this section, so we can't miss it. But what does it mean to be reconciled? What does it mean to be reconciled to God? Three components. First, reconciliation implies a previously broken relationship between two parties. This is, this, this is the implication of reconciliation, that before you were reconciled, you had a broken relationship with God. And all of us, we've had broken relationships with people. We've had re relationships that we have not been able to reconcile. And we see this all the time in the world. Tom Brady and Giselle, they were not able to reconcile. So they got divorced. Or right now, Russia and Ukraine, they're not able to reconcile. They are at war. They are hostile enemies. And so reconciliation implies a previously broken relationship or even a hostile relationship that exists. And see, so you will never understand the glory of Christ. You will never understand the glory of reconciliation until we understand the horror of alienation, until we understand the horror of condemnation, that it is our sin, not someone else's sin, but it is our sin that alienates us from God. It is our sin that condemns us before God. It is my sin that makes me worthy of hell. That if God gave me what I deserve, I would go to hell forever. And so when Paul is talking about reconciliation, his starting point is that the world is alienated from God. 
that the world is under the condemnation of God because of our sin. See, our starting point a lot of times as we relate to God, as we think of ourselves as, you know, we kind of grew up believing in God, we went to church, we're, we try to be good, good people, we know a lot of people who are more sinful than we are, so we kind of have an okay standing with God because we live in America and we have a decent life. But that is not where the Bible starts. The Bible starts that we were conceived even in sin, that, that from, from the womb we were bent towards sin, and that we sin not because we make mistakes, Rather, we sin because we are sinners, and it is our sin that alienates us from God. And so for reconciliation, to, this idea didn't make any sense. We have to understand that the starting point of reconciliation before you're reconciled to God is that you were alienated and condemned. Component number two is that reconciliation means the relationship has been restored. Reconciliation means the relationship has been restored. To be reconciled to God means a change has happened in your relationship with God. To be reconciled to God means the war between you and God is over. There is no more war between you and God. There is no more hostility between you and God. There is no more wrath waiting for you as a Christian. If you've been reconciled to God, there is no more condemnation. There is no more alienation. There is no more hell waiting for you. Instead, if you have been reconciled to God, you right now, regardless of how you behave today, you are at peace with God. You are at peace with God. You stand in a position of grace. You have fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now, right, right now, if you're a Christian and you've been reconciled, you are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. You're not an enemy of God any longer. You are a child of God because the relationship has been restored. So when Paul says that you have been reconciled to God through Christ, it means that relationship with God that was lost because of sin has been restored. Component number three is that God is the reconciler. God is the reconciler. Verse 18, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, who is doing the reconciling? It is God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That this is what God does. Reconciliation is a work of God where God reconciles sinners to himself. He is the great reconciler. And this is amazing for so many reasons, but one of them is that God is the offended party. He is the offended party. And he is the one who has reconciled us to himself. All of our sin ultimately is against him. Against you, Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And you think about all the sin in this room that we've committed, and all the sin of the world, all of that sin is an offense against the holiness and righteousness of God. God is the offended party, yet he is the one who has come after us. You know, if my wife sins against me, she never has or never will, so just pretend here for a moment, but just pretend my wife sins against me. Let's pretend she really hurts me, she does something really bad. My natural instinct is to cross my arms and wait for her to get her act together and come apologize to me, because she's wrong. And if she's wrong, she should come and apologize to me. But God is the offended party, and he did not wait for us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, figure out our life, clean up our life, and then go apologize to him. That's not what God has done. What God has done is that even though we're the, he is the one we've sinned against, he has come after us. He is the great reconciler. Many people, they envision God as distant, as a reluctant savior. You know, one of the great tragedies of Catholic doctrine is the Catholic doctrine of Mary, that Mary is what's called a co-redemptrix. And the, the idea is that Mary, because God is so busy, that God is stern, because he can be cold at times, um, you know, you have to go to Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus is also busy, and he's more kind than the Father, God the Father, but he, he can be pretty stern at times, too. So if you want to get to God, and you want to get on the good side of God, you need to go to Mary, the Holy Mother. I had a Catholic priest tell me one time uh, that God, you know, he's in, he's in heaven, and he's, he, he is loving, and he is kind, but he's very busy. He's, he's ruling the world. And Jesus, you know, he is the Son of God, and he is holy, and he loves us, but he, he's pretty busy leading his church. 
And so we need to go to Mary, that, that Mary is the one who is compassionate towards us. He gave me this example. He said, if, if you're out riding your bike and you fall down and you skin your knee, who are you going to run to as a child? Do you run to your dad? Do you run to your brother? Or do you run to your mom? You run to your mom. And that's what we do as Christians. We run to our Holy Mother, Mary. Because, see, Jesus can't resist his mother. And God the Father can't resist his son. So if you want to get, go to God, you go to, you go to Mary. And, see, this is blasphemy on so many different levels. But it makes God a reluctant Savior. It makes God a distant Savior. That somehow he needs to use some, someone else to reconcile, some human being to reconcile. As if there's someone who's really compassionate, like Mary, who needs to bridge the gap between God and man. But this is not who God is. God is a great Savior. He is not reluctant to save. He is a merciful Savior. One image I love is in Luke chapter 15. This is a picture of God the Father. It's, it's the story of the prodigal son, verse 20. This is the prodigal. It says, so he got up and went to his father. So he had, he had squandered, squandered all of his wealth on prostitutes and wild living. And now he's eating with the pigs. It says, it says that he came to his senses and he said, I should go back to my father. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. I mean, think about this. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. And what does he do? He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. That the father was looking for his lost son to come back. And the moment the, the son turned, the father ran after him. And he didn't even wait. He didn't even wait for the son to make his, his great uh, uh, apology. That, that's not what happens. Before the son can even say anything, the father hugs the son, embraces the son, and kissing him. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servant, it's almost as if the father's not even listening to the son. He's like, I'm just so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you've come back. And so the father tells his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him, the one who's been eating with the pigs, the one who has been wicked and irresponsible put the best robe on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found so they began to celebrate see god is a great reconciler he's a great savior he is the one who reconciles us to himself through christ he is a wonderful father. I saw this uh, video, and it just resonated with me. I don't know. How, how many dads? Just curiosity. I think I probably know. How many dads are in the room? Just a couple. So just imagine. I know there's not a lot of dads here, but I want you just to watch this. And it, I saw it, and it resonated with me. And so I'm going to play it. And it made me think about the Lord. So I saw that, and what's happening is the dad is there. He's in the crowd, and he sees what, what's happening to his son. And he says, uh-oh. He jumps out of the crowd and goes and lays down on his son. And I think that's, that is the impulse of a good father. And whenever you see a, a dad being a good dad, our father in heaven is infinitely better than that. Infinitely better. And this is what makes what God has done for us in Christ so incredible. Because it is God the Father who gave his son that we might be reconciled to him. That the price of our reconciliation is the blood of his son. So what has God done for us? First, he has reconciled us to himself in Christ. To be a Christian is to be reconciled to God in Christ. To have a relationship with God. The barrier of sin has been removed. Number two, God has forgiven us in Christ. Well, what has God done for us? He has forgiven us in Christ. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, by forgiving our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their, their trespasses against them. The only way that God can reconcile you to himself is by not counting your trespasses against you. That's the only way. Your sin is a barrier between, if, you, if you're lost, if you're dead in your sin, you don't know God, your sin is a barrier 
in your relationship with God. It's our sin that positions us as an enemy of God. And so if we're going to be reconciled to God, our sins must be dealt with. God cannot count our sins against us. Because if we bring our sin into our relationship with God, if we bring it into our relationship with the Holy God, the God of the universe will judge us. He will condemn us because he is holy. So we cannot be reconciled to God if we remain in our sins. Our sins must be dealt with, which poses a massive problem. And here's the problem. Here's the question. And you need to think deeply about this. Because if you don't understand this, Christ will never be that glorious to you. He, he won't be. So here's, here's the problem you need to understand. How can God be righteous and not condemn sinful people? How can God be righteous and not condemn sinful people? Most people, this is what they say. They say God just forgives us. He just sweeps our sin under the rug. But that makes our sin little and insignificant. And our sin is not little and insignificant. You know, on June 12th, 2016, Omar Mateen, have you ever heard of him? He's a man named Omar Mateen. Omar Mateen, he's a 29, he was a 29-year-old man. He walked into a gay nightclub in Orlando, and he killed 49 people and wounded 53 more in a mass shooting. He, he went into a gay bar, shot over 100 people. And he died that night. He died that night in a shootout. But I want you to imagine he didn't die, and he was arrested. And they brought Omar. They brought him before a judge. The evidence is presented the evidence is overwhelming. He confesses to what he has done. And I want you to imagine he says this. This is what he says. I did it. I shot all those people. Judge, I'm so sorry about what I did. Will you please forgive me of my crime? So I want you just to imagine that this is what he says. I did it. I shot all those people. Judge, I'm so sorry about what I did. Will you please forgive me of my crime? And imagine if the judge looked at Omar and said, you're forgiven. Go free. What would you say about that? Evil judge. You're evil. <laughs> Imagine if that judge did that with a thousand people, a million people. He looks at the, the crimes that are committed, and he, over, he just overlooks them. He sweeps them under the rug. You would, not, you would not exalt that judge as gracious. You would condemn that judge as being evil. And see, if God just forgave your sin, he would be evil. You'd be absolutely, you would, you would not worship him as gracious. You would condemn him as evil. If God overlooked your sin, you would not worship him or love him. There would be an, an eternal outcry against the God of heaven. So how can God be righteous and not condemn sin or condemn sinful people? How can he not do that? Well, look at verse 21. It says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the essence of the gospel, that at the cross, Jesus Christ, he became a man, he lived a righteous life, and he went to the cross. And at the cross, what's going on is that God the Father is treating Jesus the Son as if he had committed all of your sins, that all the guilt for all of your sins, all the con condemnation, all the alienation, all the wrath, all the punishment we deserve for our sin was poured out on Christ as our substitute, to bear our sin that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ was punished as if he had committed all of my sins. And here's the idea I've been thinking about all week. It's that Jesus was treated by God as if he lived my life so I can be treated by God as if I lived his life. Jesus was treated by God at the cross as if he lived my life. So all of my lies, my sexual sin, my pride, my anger, my bitterness, all of my sin that deserves death, Jesus Christ was treated at the cross as if he committed all of my sin. And that happened so that God the Father can treat me as if I lived the life of Jesus. That I could be a son of God so that we can become children of God. And this is the way God will treat us forever in Christ, as beloved children. And see, this is what we preach to the world. This is what we offer to the world. We offer the gospel to the world. What we, we, what we tell the world is that you can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven of your sins. Oftentimes, the gospel is, is presented in a way that I think dishonors God. It's presented as a means to get what you already want in your sinful flesh. Are you lonely in life? Come to Christ and have friends. Do you like purpose in your life? Come to Christ and have a great purpose. Do you need a new job? Come to Christ, get a new job. 
Do you need more money? Come to Christ and get more money. Are you single and you're ready to mingle, but there's not a lot of mingling happening? Come to Christ and get a girl or get a guy. Do you need to straighten out your slice on the golf course? I do. Come to Christ and get a, just drive that ball down the middle of the, the fairway. But that's not what we're offering the world. This is, this is our offer to the world. Do you want to know God? And you should think long and hard about that question. Do you want to know God? Do you want to be reconciled to him? Do you want to go to heaven instead of hell? Do you want all of your sins forgiven? Then come to Christ. Come to him. Come to him by faith and he will redeem you. He will reconcile you. He will forgive you. He will give you a new life. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. To be a Christian is to be a new creation. It is to be reconciled to God. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So to be a Christian is to have a new life. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we, may, so we too may walk in newness of life. Christ died that we might have a new life. A new life in him. And all of this is a gift of his grace. Now, I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but this is what God has done. He has reconciled us to himself, and he's forgiven us our sins. He's made us a new creation. He's given us a new life. It's a beautiful thing. Question number two, what does God do through us in Christ? What is God doing? If, now that you're, if you are a Christian, which I think most of you are, what is he doing through you? Lots of things. But verse 20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now think about this reality. <laughs> We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, part of your new identity, part of being a new creation in Christ is that we are ambassadors for Christ. And here's the principle. Those whom God reconciles, he uses to reconcile others to himself. This is how God has set up his kingdom to work, that he saves someone. He brings someone to himself. He changes someone, makes them a new creation, gives them a new life. And part of this new identity is that you're an ambassador for Christ and that he will use your life to see other people reconciled to him. Now, what does it mean to be an ambassador? Well, ambassadors... If you go back 2,000 years ago, ambassadors represented kings in foreign lands. So a king of a kingdom would send out ambassadors to foreign lands. And they would do that so that they would have representation in a foreign land. And so the job of the ambassador was not to just go party and have a good time and see the world. The, the job of the ambassador that was sent by the king was to represent the king and the king's interest in a foreign land. And so in many ways, the ambassador is not representing themselves. In many ways, the ambassador's opinion doesn't even matter. I mean, it matters to some degree, but that's not why they're sent. The job of an ambassador is to represent the king in the interest of the king. And to be an ambassador of Christ is to be sent by the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to represent him. But this, this is at the very heart of being an ambassador. And this is a gift that God has given to every Christian I think God gave this gift uniquely to the Apostle Paul and the Apostles, but I think this truth of being an ambassador for Christ, it applies to you if you're a Christian. Look at verse 18. Everything is from God who has reconciled us. Now, do you see this? He has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. To be an ambassador means that God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so, Part of God's plan is to appeal that God is making his appeal to the lost world as to why they should turn from their sin and embrace Christ. God is making that appeal to the world through you. Through you. 
That is a wild reality. And when I think about this reality, I have two very different responses. My first response is I think that's thrilling. I mean, isn't that thrilling? That God wants to use us to accomplish his eternal purposes. That he wants to use our lives. He, he wants to use our words, our example, to plead through us to the world, come to Christ. Believe in Christ. Turn from your sin. God wants to use us to invite people into his kingdom. And I am convinced, and I've been convinced for almost 25 years, I am convinced that this is the reason we're still on planet Earth as Christians. Like, why are we here? Everything in heaven is going to be much better. Everything. Our relationships will be better. Food will be better. I mean, creation will be without sin. I mean, it's going to be more beautiful. More beautiful. We'll worship God more fully in heaven. We'll see God in heaven. So why are we still here? Well, we are here for the sake of the ministry of reconciliation. We are here for the sake of the ministry of reconciliation, that God is still at work in the world, that God is still at work on your campuses. He's at work in your family and in your cities, that he is, he is working and calling people to himself by his grace. And over the years, just watching people come into the kingdom of God and watching their lives change, watching someone become a new creation and watching someone grow up and mature in the faith. I mean, there really is nothing better than that. What's better than that? John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. It is a beautiful thing to join God in what he is doing in the world. And so one experience I have at this truth is that it's thrilling. The second experience I have is that it's utterly overwhelming. For many of you, you probably hear this as being overwhelming, that you feel immediately, you feel your sense of inadequacy. You say what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, who is equal for such a task? Who is equal to represent the Lord Jesus Christ in this fallen world? But the good news is that God has factored our weaknesses into his saving plan. That God has factored our weaknesses into his saving plan, just like Moses. When God chose Moses to use Moses to set his people free, he did not choose Moses because Moses had it all together. Remember, Moses says, I, I can't, I can barely speak. I have a speech impediment. And God says, no big deal. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. He's factored in our weaknesses. God does not say, I will use your life to accomplish my purposes as long as you're perfect. He does not say that. He says, I will use your life if you'll give it to me. I will use your life if you give it to me. If you will trust me, if you will obey me, he will use us even in our weaknesses or maybe especially through our weakness that the glory of God might be put on display. I remember uh, 20 years ago, I was sitting in Estes Park. It might have, I was thinking about it today. It might have been in this room, like 20-some years ago, in Estes Park. And I, re I remember, by the grace of God, just understanding that God wanted to use my life for his glory. And I remember that it was, during that time, it was more than just an idea in my head. It's like that truth landed in my soul. And I've never been the same that God would use me for his glory, to see lost people come into the kingdom of God, to see people's lives transformed, to see people grow into spiritual maturity. It, it just sunk deep inside of me. And when I understood that, there were so many ideas that snapped into place. See, I grew up in a church. How many of you grew up, just out of curiosity, how many of you grew up going to church on a regular basis? Like, a lot of church kids here, and that's good. I, I, I was a church kid. That's a good thing. And I remember growing up, and I had all, my dad was a pastor, and I had all these questions uh, in my head, and I, maybe people answered them, and I wasn't listening. I don't know, but I had all these questions, like, why is church so important? And why can't we cuss? Like, why can't, why can't we not cuss? All my friends on my baseball teams, sports teams, they were always cussing. And my parents were like, hey, you shouldn't cuss. And I was like, why not? And then I was around Christians who used Christian cuss words. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and it was so lame. Slug in a ditch. <laughs> Come on, man. Shut the front door. <laughs> I was like, why can't just use? I don't get that. But whatever. But I remember thinking, why can't you cuss? 
And I was, I was interested in girls. And I was like, why? I know I, I can't, I'm not supposed to mess around with girls, but why not? And why should I care about my neighbors? My parents cared about our neighbors. We had this garden. <laughs> my parents made my brothers and I grow this garden, <laughs> and we were terrible at it. And we'd go out and we'd pull weeds all the time. And I would say, why are we doing this? And they're like, well, we got to give these tomatoes and cucumbers to our neighbors so we can invite them to church. And harvest time, we would pick all the tomatoes and cucumbers and everything we had, and we would go give it to our neighbors. And my parents would invite our neighbors to church. And I'm like, why are we doing this? This is awkward. How about next year, no garden? Just invite them to church. I don't care. Just what are we doing? This is so weird. But 20-some 20, 20 years ago, in Estes Park, the reality of hell and the reality of heaven became real to me. It became real. And I said, oh, my goodness. If heaven is real, if hell is real, and Christ is the only way of salvation... And it is true that God wants to use us in our weaknesses to change the world. Why would I not give my whole life to him? Like, what's more important? And over the years, the reality of heaven and the reality of hell, sometimes they've become more abstract, but then there are times where it's just so clear. A couple months ago, I got a call from someone in our church. Uh, it's a woman who's been around for a long time. And her husband was at work. He has a job, work. he did some landscaping, he managed some facilities. And on, I think it was on a Wednesday morning, he was out doing his thing. He was moving some landscaping, some plants, and a bunch of other things in a gator. And he was crossing, there's a little crosswalk area. And he pulled out into the street, and he got hit by a car, going 35 miles per hour. So I got a call, he was in the ER. And so I went down there just to be with the wife. But they said, hey, you've got to come into the ER. So I walked into the ER, or ER room, and I saw him. His blood's on the floor. Both of his legs were broken. Both of his arms are broken. His collarbones were broken. His skull was broken. And he was green. And he was dying. And in that moment, there's his family members there. His kids are there. The doctor's there. His wife is there. And in that moment, I just thought, oh, Lord, <laughs> the only thing that matters is whether or not he knows you. That's it. That's the, the only thing. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And every day, people are slipping into eternity. And God has not put the responsibility on our shoulders to redeem the whole world by ourselves. But if we try to... If we try to make sense of the Christian life without making sense of heaven or hell, it, the Christian life becomes so abstract and it's not compelling at all. And just the truth, God is appealing through his people to the world. Be reconciled to God. So why should we not cuss? Because I'm an ambassador for Christ. I represent Christ in the world. Why should I love my enemies? Why should I be good to those who are unkind to me? Because that's the way the Lord Jesus is. Why should I not commit sexual sin? hundred reasons. But Jesus did not commit sexual sin. Why should I tell the truth and not lie? Because Jesus is the truth. Why should I obey the word of God? Because Jesus obeyed the word of God. See, to live for him, part of living for him, is living to represent him in the world. And so my life has never been the same. And there is nothing more thrilling in the world than trusting God, loving people by the grace of God, and then seeing people come to faith in Christ and their lives transformed. And most of the time, most of the time, people, they don't, they don't, want to hear about Christ. Most, most of the world. A lot of people, they'll talk, to, they'll talk to you about the Lord, but they don't want to hear about the Lord. I, I remember when I was 14 at that conference, I went home, I learned how to share the gospel. I called up my friend Chris. <laughs> I said, Chris, let's go to Taco John's. And so we went to Taco John's, and I said, I got to tell you about Christ. And so I shared the gospel with him, and at the end of the gospel presentation, I said, Chris, would you like to commit your life to Christ? And he goes, yeah. 
And this is what I thought. I'm not saying this is right. I, but I thought, of course you do. That was a great gospel presentation. <laughs> that was like, that was good. And I really thought this. I thought, I'm going to lead everybody to Christ. I'm leading everybody to Christ. I'm 14, remember. I really quickly understood that I can't lead anybody to Christ, that it really is the work of God. Most of the time, the world is rejecting the gospel because it rejects Christ. And I remember, remember thinking, oh God, if they reject the gospel, I don't want it to be because of me. If they're going to reject the gospel, may it be because they're rejecting you. I don't want to live in a way that causes the lost world to stumble. I don't want them to discredit the message because I run my mouth, because I'm out partying, because I'm talking about women inappropriately, because I'm not, I'm not validating the message with my life. Oh, God, I, if they reject the gospel, I don't want it to be because of me. I want them to stumble over you. And we're not going to be perfect, but I think God wants us to represent him in the world. So what do we do about this? What do we do about this? Well, just a couple closing thoughts. First, your heart. I want to address your heart for a moment. I want to address your heart for a moment. Your heart and your soul, your inner being, needs to reach a conclusion about Christ. Did he die for the world? Did he rise from the dead? Is he, is he the only hope of salvation? So many people remain up in the air about Christ, indecisive, back and forth. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, 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 I know. He's, yeah, I know. I'll go to church. I like my Christian friends. I, yeah, 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 yeah. But we never land. We don't land. We, we don't reach any conclusion. But see, I think people who really follow Christ, they reach a conclusion. Second Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ, this is what Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. I love that. We've reached a conclusion about Christ. We're not indecisive. We're not back and forth. We've reached a conclusion. What's that conclusion? That one died for all, and therefore all died. He died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Praise God. In Christ, we don't have to live for ourselves anymore. We don't have to live for our dreams. We don't have to, we don't have to go, go, go after the world and make sense of the world apart from Christ. To be a Christian is to have our lives hidden in him. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised again. Please notice in the soul of the Apostle Paul that it was the love of Christ that compelled him. Not obligation. Not guilt. Not shame, not competition, not keeping up with your friends, not because this is what people want me to do, but the love of Christ. It was the, he saw the glory of Christ. He saw the love of Christ. The love of Christ that moved him to lay down his life for us. See, if obligation, guilt, shame, keeping up with people, competition is your motivation for gospel ministry, it will run out. It will burn out. But see, the love of Christ, being compelled by the love of Christ in light of who Christ is and all that he's done for us, that will only burn hotter in us over time. You talk to people who've been walking with Christ for a long time, I ask them this question. I like asking people this question. I don't want to put anyone on the spot. I'm tempted to do it. I'm not going to do it. But just think about this question. Is your passion for Christ greater now than when you were 25? And people who see the glory of Christ, they say, it's greater now. It's greater now. So when, when, you're, when you see Christ and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, your passion burns hotter, stronger over time. Doesn't mean you don't fail. Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. Doesn't mean you. It doesn't mean you say things you wish you hadn't said, or doesn't mean you fall asleep spiritually for a while. It just means that your passion increases over time. So notice what was happening in Paul's life. It's the love of Christ. 
what God has done for us in Christ, reconciling us to himself, not counting our sins against us. This is what was compelling him. This was the fuel that burned in his soul. Please also notice the commitment of the Apostle Paul in his soul. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Just that clarity. I'm not living for myself. My life is not my own. Can you say that? There must be a commitment in your heart to Christ and the ministry of reconciliation, not for a season, but for a lifetime. By the grace of God, almost 25 years ago, I committed my life to him. And by his grace, I feel more, I feel like I love God more, like I understand each year that goes by more and more of what God has done for me. What about you? What about you? Have you you reached that conclusion in your soul? Something that has changed my life over the years. I remember, um, I think I was 19, maybe I was 20. I remember there was a group of guys. We were were at Drake University. We went to a conference like this, and we sat around after a session. We looked at each other in the eye. And we just we talked about what is God teaching us? What are we learning about? Learning about what is God challenging us in? And we just said, we looked at each other and we said, guys, for the rest of our lives, let's follow Christ together. Now, it doesn't mean we're physically going to be side by side the whole time. But for the rest of our lives, let's spur one another on to love Christ. And let's give ourselves to the ministry of reconciliation. Whatever that looks like. Whatever it looks like. And those relationships have been such an encouragement for me. And so if you want to go the distance, you've got to have other men and women in your life that will look you in the eye and say, let's go together. Do you have that? I hope you do. And if there are five people on your campus who look at each other and say, in light of who Christ is, let's reach our campus, I believe God will honor that. And if you have 15 I think you can do even more. If you have 50, you can turn the world upside down. The Lord Jesus started with 12. So your heart, where's your heart at? Number two, your eyes. Your eyes. If you're going to live this way, you've got to see differently. 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on then, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. There are thousands of ways to divide the world. Rich, poor, black, white, ugly, attractive, Democrat, Republican, the list goes on. And when we divide the world this way, we will not engage with the world properly. So think about that. If we divide the if we just look at the world from a worldly perspective, we will not engage with the world properly. Paul gives us an example of this with the Lord Jesus. He says this from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective. Paul says, we used to know Christ from a worldly perspective. He looked at Christ. Who is he? He's a rabbi. He's a Jewish. He is a, he is a Jewish rebel. He's a blasphemer. He deserved to die. And those who preach the gospel deserve to die. That was Paul's conclusion. He looked at Christ from a worldly perspective. And when you look at people and you just look at their beauty, their wealth, their poverty, whatever it is, the color of their skin, how intelligent they are, how athletic they are. You won't engage with them properly. So how do you look at the world? You need to divide the world. You need to divide the world into two categories. In Christ, not in Christ. In Christ, not in Christ. You belong to Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Reconciled, not reconciled. There should be a preoccupation in our souls about the souls of others. Because otherwise, what can happen is you get around powerful people, you get, you get around wealthy people, you get around attractive people, you get around successful people, and you just, you kind of crumble. What are they going to think? You know, what are they going to say? But see, when you just look at people's souls, and you say, oh man, God wants to reconcile them to the world in Christ, that God, he wants to save the world in Christ. You, you have this inward transformation. And so you need to see the world 
differently. Courage will begin to well up in your life. And then lastly, your mouth. Your mouth. I'm going to skip to verse 19. It says, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Uh, we need to live in a way that honors God, no doubt about it. And I'm not saying every time you meet someone, you need, I'm not saying every time you meet them, the first time you meet them, you, need, you should ask them, are you reconciled to God? Or are you dead in your sins? Where are you at? Just shoot straight. That's not what I'm saying. But in your souls, you need to know, if I'm going to represent Christ well, I, at some point, I need to tell them about what God has done for them in Christ. You need to open your mouth. But it's scary, I know. I feel inadequate, I know. But God will use weak vessels to change the world. Most of the time you will be rejected, and that's okay. They killed Jesus. Most of the time you'll be condemned. That's okay. This is part of representing Christ in the world. So just to close, I'm going to put up some questions. I don't know if this will be weird. But I want to just give you a couple of minutes. I know I'm a little bit over my time. Sorry, guys. But I, I want to give you maybe just a couple minutes. You don't need to say anything. Just to think about these questions. Okay? What do you need to say to the Lord? Have you ever really spoken to the Lord? Said, Lord, here's my life. I want to give you my life. What needs to change in your life? Are there... Areas of your life where you know you're not representing Christ well. Who do you need to... Okay, scratch question number three. I don't know what that says. Uh, who do you need to start praying for? And who do you need to share the message of reconciliation with? So just think about some of those questions. And, um, and then is the band coming up again? Is that right? So maybe the band, you can come up in a couple minutes. But just, I want to encourage you just to think... Uh, take a pencil or pen and just write out a few thoughts. Commune with the Lord. Think about if there's any application, and, and uh, then the band will come up and worship. So I'll go ahead and pray. Father. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content, or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.